Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm maintaining. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up, no one knows who any of the Best Picture nominees are. Uh, okay, that's not quite true. But if I were a producer at the Oscars, I would be very, very nervous about a recent poll highlighted in Variety that showed none of the nominees had been heard of by more than half of, quote, active entertainment consumers, end quote. Uh, no, the poll did not find that 46% of viewers had seen Judas and the Black Messiah, which is the most recognized of this year's eight Best Picture nominees. The poll found that only 46% of, again, quote, active entertainment consumers, end quote, were even aware of it. Uh, the numbers are fascinating all in all. The least recognized film in the poll was Mank at 18%, which is a bit surprising given that Mank was on the front page of Netflix for several weeks, and Netflix is in uh, roughly 60% of U.S. households, and probably more than that once you take password sharing into account. Uh, its streamer mate, the, tri the Trial of the Chicago 7, on the other hand, was recognized by 39% of respondents. I don't know if it's just a black and white thing or what, but uh, Trial of Chicago 7, much more recognizable than Mank. Um, let's be honest. Part of the reason for this is that it has been a not great year for movies, and all of the nominees are at best good. Uh, none of them is a triumph. Promising Young Woman has the right politics, and Nomadland has the right mood lighting, and Sound of Metal features a broken down performer, the sort beloved by actors, the biggest voting block. Uh, but there's not a single film in the bunch that most people would consider a masterpiece. Peter, feel free to disagree when we get to you. I I, I read about I'm this stuff every day. I'm going to disagree now. Nomadland is a masterpiece. I read about this stuff every day, and if Billy Eichner stopped me on the street and asked me to name all of the eight nominees off the top of my head, I'd still probably forget the father, let's be honest. Uh, I do think it is interesting that Judas and the Black Messiah uh, is the only one of these films to get a proper theatrical release and is the most recognized. Alyssa, does this mean theaters still have some purpose to serve? I mean, maybe? Um, I will say Judas and the Black Messiah was the movie for which I got the most, like, here's an event surrounding this. Like, the they, it felt to me like the producers were putting on a very active campaign to increase awareness of the movie, whether or not the sort of theatrical release of the film had anything to do with that. But, yeah, man, I just don't know. I mean, and I felt like, you know, even within film Twitter, where people have presumably seen all or most of these movies and talk about them, there were not sort of, big like beyond the question of whether any of the movies were really good none of them kind of emerged as talkers in a way that seemed to have prompted people to go out and say huh i want to check that out that sounds interesting i want to know what this fight is about um but i also think you know promotion here is a little bit of a black box right like mank was on our home screens because you know the all-powerful Netflix algorithm knows that the three of us are film nerds, but like there's no guarantee that it was served to 60 million households on personalized home screens um, the way I think you, you're kind of assuming happened. Um, but yeah, I think this is bad news for the Oscars, especially, and if I were ABC and we're looking at the numbers for other award shows this season, I would be real freaked out. Um, since we've seen award shows ratings falling sort of roughly 50%, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less. Um, and nobody knows what any of this stuff is, which means they can't possibly have a rooting interest. Peter, what do you, I mean, I, I, I want to, I want to 
note Alyssa's point here, which I think is basically right in insofar as that none of us know what everybody is seeing on their home screens at Netflix. That being said, I do think they do tend to give their originals a lot of promo, especially the originals that like look like they are going to be award season type movies. I mean, I, I get like every original winds up in my, you know, homepage. Uh, and I don't so know. We also because... know that that Netflix does micro targeting down to the individual level. And right. so they will make sure that when they have directors who have produced films for them, that film is really heavily advertised on that director's home screen because they can control individual accounts. And my guess is that at least with the two of you guys who have see, who use uh, Netflix's screener system uh, sometimes, you guys have screener accounts attached. Yeah. And actually now I do as well, um, as of a couple of months ago, uh, that people who have screeners who have... Uh, ever had a screener through Netflix probably get a different home screen system uh, that is devoted to their awards films. But let's let's sort of talk more about the Oscars and a little less about Netflix and Mank. I do think Mank is the biggest failure here because it is in some ways the biggest movie. It's a, a big studio director who has who has made films that lots of people have seen, uh, who has, you know, been um, nominated uh, before uh, for um, for the social network. I mean, David Fincher is not some little artsy indie director, and he made a big movie for Netflix, and it is the least well-known of these things. But this is, we have to consider the context here. Um, people have been losing interest in the Oscars for years. It has it was fading slowly into irrelevance, right? Uh, the uh, the last uh, last year ceremony gave Parasite the um, the uh, the Best Picture award, and that was a movie that not a lot of people had seen. I I really liked the movie, but uh, it is maybe not um, an accident that 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 ceremony also had an all time low of viewership of about twenty three and a half million viewers, um, and so this was this was something that was happening pre pandemic, um, and now that fade that slow fade into irrelevance is going to be a cut to black. And I think that this is not just the pandemic here. This is about the Academy um, taking itself out of the conversation. And I think Alyssa was exactly right to, to say that this is about films being sort of conversational objects. Um, and the Academy just hasn't been nominating the sort of big sweeping movies that used to win best, best picture on the regular. Uh, the kind of universal or near universal or even like let's call them hypothetically universal crowd pleasers that uh, maybe weren't the year's biggest action movies, um, but were epic and, you know, and sort of had something to say about the world. No, not just the world, had something specifically to say about America. Um, and this and it's is, also, I think, it's also of, fair to note that fewer of those movies are being made. Yes, right. So fewer of those movies are being made and fewer of those movies are being nominated. Um, and so what we see is the best picture uh, slate in particular, but just the Oscars generally, morphing into a kind of demographic micro-targeting, right? In which each movie targets or represents a specific niche. And you can increase diversity and representation that way. But in some ways, it means there's less for ordinary viewers. There's not these sort of big popular picks for people to glom onto. Um, and, you know, part of that is also just that until recently, this is the thing we've talked about a lot, is that Hollywood was a, a largely a domestic industry focused on domestic concerns, and Oscar movies were, in many cases, movies that spoke to America's idea and ideals about itself. And now we don't have those films. Um, now we have movies that are, now we, they, those films just sort of don't exist. Um, and talking about those big popular sweeping films, 
um, which were often pretty good, maybe not always great, but at least pretty good, kind of competently, excellently, you know, sort of crafted and made, um, was a way for America to understand itself. And that just that just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I, I think that is that's not the only story here. The pandemic is obviously a huge part of it. But it's also the the changing nature of how Hollywood talks about itself, talks about America, um, and the kinds of movies that it both makes and nominates, and that has that has just sort of rendered the Academy and its awards somewhat irrelevant to normie viewers. Well, I mean, I, the the other the the other real big thing to consider here is that this is a total failure of marketing because in, in you know in a, in a typical Oscar year you have some movies that are kind of small uh, and some movies that are kind of big, but everybody can see them if they want to go to the theaters. But some people don't want to go to the theaters. Everybody can watch all of these films at home right now. Everybody can watch all of these films if if you like award season movies, if you like. Uh, you know, the Oscar style films, if you like artistic achievements, you can watch all of these movies at home. Some of them cost, you know, more than others. I think The Father is $20 right now. It's on BBOD. Um, some are less, uh, you know, Promising Young Woman, I think, is six or seven bucks to rent now. Maybe it's even less. But and some are on Netflix and some are on Amazon. You know, Sound of Metal is on Amazon. Like the all of these movies are available to be seen by people. And yet... You know, I don't know if 100% of households in America have the internet in the home, but I, I think pretty much we're pretty close to that. And if you are uh, looking at a situation I think it's where fair you... to say that most former regular moviegoers have yeah, high-speed internet you, connections right. and probably at least one streaming service. If you, if you have access to the internet in your home, which is just about any, everybody, you can see any of these movies. And the simple fact of the matter is that people don't even know what they are. People, people, had, people do not know, not only like that, they're, that they've been nominated for Oscars, they just don't know that these movies exist. Which is, this is one of the reasons why I highlight Judas and the Black Messiah and the, the, the fact that it was in theaters, because it got like a legit... Uh, movie in a theater style marketing campaign. It was on billboards. It was they showed ads for it on TV and and elsewhere. Uh, and I I do think that I think that the the industry has a number of problems right now. But one of them is just a total failure of advertising penetration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting, uh, just quickly, there was a stat that came out of the same poll that um, that in which the average wide theatrical release from last year uh, had awareness of about 44 percent. And we just sort of the in addition to losing movies and to losing, you know, theatrical exhibition, we lost all of those big marketing campaigns. And the average, you know, $150 million movie now spends another hundred or $150 million on advertising. And there's a reason for that. It's because without that, people don't know that these movies are out there. Yeah. I also think just if we're going to talk about the Oscar ceremony, it's worth talking about the fact that the Oscars are not actually a particularly pleasurable viewing experience for most people. And they are unnecessary if their role is best understood as a chance to see celebrities in a moment when they're kind of, you know, theoretically sort of human and having a response to things. Um, you know, the a more confessional, democratized celebrity culture has like both you know, kind of blown up the mythos of the Oscars and eliminated their role as an access point into celebrities' lives. And, you know, there is never, I cannot, in the years that I've been working 
as a professional journalist covering the entertainment industry, industry, there has never been an Oscar ceremony that was considered sort of an unqualified triumph, right? Like, it's always poorly reviewed. It's always too long. Like, everyone knows that this does not work as an entertainment spectacle. And so if you both don't have skin in the game because you don't know or care about the movies, and you think the thing itself is kind of dull, why have it at all? I mean, not just in a pandemic year, but well, why have it Alyssa, at all? Alyssa, this, this brings me to my question for you is, would you like to take your victory lap now? After, uh, you know, you, you suggested that it was time... Uh, to maybe put 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 the Oscars on ice for a year, uh, at least in terms of you know having a big televised celebration. And people said, no, 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 we have to do it because this will bring attention to the artistic, you know, uh, triumphs in our in our cinematic year. Uh, people will know about them. You know, this will raise so much awareness for the smaller movies. Has that happened? I mean, I would prefer to have been wrong. You know, if a million, if like. A gazillion people had gone out and watched Sound of Metal because it got nominated. I would be happier to live in that world. But I think it's pretty clearly not the case. Um, And I don't, you know, I think treating the Oscars as sort of a major promotional engine is just not true. Um, It's totally the other way around. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's it's the other way around. I mean, big movies attract big audiences. Yeah. Right. To the, is... to the extent that Osc- the Oscars ceremony is a promotional engine, it's because some of these smaller uh, critical darlings, artsy films that you know sort of are little engines that could get paired with the bigger big films movies that, that a lot of people have seen see. and are invested in, and there but becomes also... a narrative about yeah, who's yeah. going to win, yeah. and you know. Right. Whether it's going to be the big film or whether it's going to be the little guy that triumphs against all odds because, you know, this movie was made for $4 million and it's up against all these $100 million studio things, right? Yeah. And I, you know, again, like I don't take a lot of pleasure in being right about that. But I think the sort of the idea that the world needed these award shows to go on is just incredibly not true. And I continue to not understand why Hollywood both sort of didn't recognize that maybe what Americans want to see right now is not a bunch of stars being self-congratulatory, but also why it didn't take these slots in the calendar and say, we're going to put on something awesome that raises money to help, for example, the 40,000 kids in America who have lost a parent to COVID, right? Like there was just sort of a, you know, and Hollywood and the movies in particular have a really bad self-glorifying streak um, in terms of talking about their own social significance. And the idea that like Americans needed the Oscars to feel normal again is just obviously not true. There are a lot of other needs in America that the incredibly rich people who make up the Academy could do something about. And that might be what Americans need more than, you know, a lot of red carpet coverage. I mean, I think it's kind of funny that um, that Mank is not only the film that has the least uh, recognize uh, recognizability. It's also the film that's leading in the awards, and it is the it's the movie it's the movie about Hollywood, right? It is yeah. it is a now I think it is interestingly a kind of poison pen letter to you know it is not like the 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 Dyspeptic. typical sort of like nostalgic gauzy look back at old Hollywood. It is very it's quite critical of both old Hollywood and today, but it is it's it's an insider film in so many ways, and like. At a certain point, people just don't care about that stuff. And I that's why I think that the mix of films that are both being produced 
and that are being chosen is a big part of this story. And I just actually want to do like a quick case study of, of a film that I was thinking about um, while, you know, while thinking about this question, um, which is Apollo 13 which came out in 1995. It was a actually a big summer movie. It was released at the end of June. It made about $180 million domestically, which is about $300 million adjusted for inflation. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress, as well as some of the more technical awards. Now, it didn't win Best Picture or Screenplay. Uh, it eventually lost Best Picture to Braveheart, but that was another big, crowd-pleasing historical epic. Um, but it was part of the mix and part of the conversation. And, you know, then you, if you like want to sort of go back just a couple of years, you had a movie, uh, First Man, directed by Damien Chazelle, another historically minded space film. And the conversation about that movie was divided between like completely idiotic right wing complaints about how the movie isn't American enough because it doesn't show the American flag or something. And then also this sort of like really narrow, you know, criticism of of Damien Chazelle as being too focused on white male protagonists and like white male mid-century engineer culture. Admittedly, this is not quite the big crowd pleaser that Apollo 13 was, but I thought it was a really good movie. And even 10 years before, it's the sort of movie that would have been sort of a shoe in for at least a nomination for Best Picture. It just got totally drowned out in arguments about politics and identity uh, on both sides of the aisle that I think were, were kind of destructive. Um, and sort of distracted from the from an actually very good movie that then nobody ended up watching because it just sort of got politicized to death and so much of that is is happening now um in our movie discourse uh, even before the pandemic um and that is i think a a a big reason why people are just tuning out of the oscars it's, there's nothing there for them there's not anything yeah. that is sort of connecting with with interested but essentially ordinary viewers yeah and I, I think you're right that this is kind of a problem on both sides of the aisle because, I mean, I feel like even uh, even even the folks on the left who, you know, are, are kind of dismissive of like, oh, well, oh, no, movies are political now, huh? You know, uh, movies have always been political, whatever. Like there's it's, it's a very specific like brand of very online uh, politicization that I think people people get hung up on. Uh, and and frankly, that normal normal folks who are sane and not on Twitter all the time kind of check out of. Well, and also, uh, I mean, let's be honest. I I think I think I probably like this year's crop of nominees more than you do, Sunny. Um, and it's also a you know a list of nominees that ought to be the kind of thing that folks have been advocating for diversity in Hollywood are really excited about, and that sort of energy just doesn't appear to be there. I see. I think that energy is there within the people who talk about this sort of thing. I think that nobody outside of I just think nobody in the real world cares, and like just nobody knows. I mean, I like I I don't know. I I, I honestly I I don't know. And this brings me to my exit question, which kind of gets at this point, which is if you if you had to guess how many of these movies uh, that the average United States citizen, not even not not like the more narrow slice of like active entertainment you know, whatever's uh, have have watched. But like the average United States citizen has actually seen, not heard of, but actually seen. What would you put that number at, uh, Peter? Zero. Alyssa? 0. 0.125. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would set the over under at like 0. 0.5 and I might take the under. Uh, and I, I just think that the, the you know, the, the viewership for the Oscars uh, is going to have a very tough time 
possibly cracking eight figures. I mean, I, I again, I would put the over-under at 10 million, and I don't know which way I would go, which would be kind of a disaster. I right? Like, are there even, I, are there 10 million people who are excited to see if Minari won Best Picture or even knows what Minari is? I, like, I just, I don't know what the answer is, and I think the answer is I can tell you not. what Minari is. It's a pretty good movie that's not as good as Nomadland. It's very, it's, it's, they're all fine. I mean, they're all good, they're fine, but there's, there, there just isn't, it's just, uh, I just, I feel like Immort, Immort, Immortan Joe yelling mediocre at the screen anytime <laughs> I look at the, uh, the lineup of, of, nominees. Uh, all right, if you enjoy this show, and who doesn't, it's way better than the Oscars, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about Godzilla vs. Kong's box office success. Our theater's back. Did WB miscalculate by insisting that all features open on HBO Max simultaneously through the end of the year? Find out now by subscribing to Bulwark Plus. Now on to the main event. Literally the main event. Godzilla vs. Kong. That's right. Japan's most famous lizard is fighting America's favorite giant monkey. And they are doing so to prove once and for all who would win in a fight. A skyscraper-sized dinosaur with radioactive fire breath that can uh, breathe under the water or on the land. uh, And can sense any other titan anywhere in the world. Or a big monkey. Hard to say. No one knows. Uh, I don't know that we need to get into a lot of plot summary here. Uh, suffice to say that Godzilla is mad at a company called Apex Cybernetics and wants to uh, want uh, and and to stop him from destroying coastal area areas in America and China alike. A team of heroes must trick King Kong into venturing into the hollow earth via the Antarctic for some reason so they can uh, retrieve an energy sample that will power a massive weapon capable of restoring humanity to its rightful place as the apex predator on planet Earth. This is uh, already Godzilla... more plot summary than this movie deserves. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, like, it was tr- I was trying to summarize it in one sentence. It's just a long sentence. Uh, Godzilla and Kong, ancient enemies, uh, as we learn from a March Madness-style bracket, in the opening credits, it, it shows an actual bracket with the monsters, and at the end, it's Godzilla and King Kong. Uh, they're practically fated to go to war with one another. There are so many crazy things that happen in this movie, uh, from the fact that Skull Island is apparently covered in a permanent storm for some reason, uh, to the fact that a crazy conspiracy theorist podcaster actually has the goods on a crazy conspiracy theory, uh, to the fact that this movie basically kind of sort of rips off most of the core in, in significant ways. Remember the core? I remember the core. Uh, that I, I really only want to highlight one. This is this is the most fascinating and unexplained thing in the entire movie to me, and I I don't I don't understand it, and I need I need more about this. Um, for some reason, there are monkey statues in the middle of the earth, in the hollow earth. What are the monkey statues doing there? Who built them? Was it the monkeys? Was it people who worshipped the monkeys? I don't know. Anyway, I assume all of this will be answered in King Kong Two: Hollow Earth Boogaloo. Uh, Peter. I watched this movie at home and in a theater. And let me tell you, my sound system couldn't compare to the theaters, but I'm guessing yours held up a little bit better, no? My sound system compares pretty well to most movie theaters that aren't like Dolby Atmos enabled, even though my system is a nine-channel Dolby Atmos enabled system. Um, no, Word. it's... Uh, look, um, I, have a, I have a nice home theater system, and... Um, I don't think it added a, it added something here, um, but I don't think it added enough to make this a good movie. I I really this this movie is just big, dumb, and loud, and not really much else. Um, I it does deliver in a very basic and blunt way on the core promise of the title: Godzilla fights King Kong. 
yep, that happens. Whole bunch of it. Like the lizard and the monkey, the lizard and the ape. Sorry, it's an ape, not a monkey. Yes, the lizard, you're misspeciesing mis him. The, big monkey. The, the, big monkey. Big, the big monsters fight each other. And then there's a third big monster. Spoiler. 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 It's Mecha Godzilla shows up. And they fight Mecha Godzilla, and that's the true villain. And it's fine. It's just, it's not even. It's actually, it's not fine. Um, there's some. I I think uh, this movie compares poorly uh, to the first Godzilla film in this series, as well as to Kong Skull Island. It's a little better in some ways than Godzilla King of the Monsters, which is the immediate predecessor here, but only a little better, um, and mostly because it just sort of gets to the point, uh, which is that it doesn't really it doesn't try to do anything other than stage fights between these two big monsters and if that's really what you want is just um is expensively animated but not particularly clever in any way fighting between these two monsters then you'll get that and if you've got a good sound system it will be very loud and it will shake your couch and rattle your kneecaps and that's all it is it's just big and loud and i found the action scenes to be so sort of tiresome and tedious here they're just there's not really anything to them i i can't remember a single sort of uh hero shot right a, like a, a big mo yes there's the big moment where he rips off the skull of, of the mecha godzilla at the end and it's got its spine hanging there but it's it's shot so indifferently um it's it's uh, staged so indifferently. It's just sort of, it's just kind of lumbering um, and and perfunctory. And I I just was, I was really bored by this movie, uh, as loud as it was on a, on a good home theater system. And I kind of suspect that I would have felt the same way in a movie theater. I'm actually glad I didn't spend time and money paying to see this because I don't think... As much as I love movie theaters, and as much as I am glad that people are paying uh, to see movie to see movies in a theater, I don't think that this was would have been worth it. I I will say that I my one my only disagreement with any of that, frankly, is I do think the first Hong Kong fight with the kind of neon lit skyscrapers of Hong Kong being destroyed uh, in in exceedingly uh, uh, you know in-depth fashion by by our two but just think about heroes. think about the the comparison looks good. i just fight. think it looks good like i don't dark, even think it, the dark it, crystal light. it has a sort of interesting vibe to it but i don't even think it looks all that good and i i would just briefly compare this with pacific rim which is the great uh sort of giant things fighting each other movie of the last decade and that movie has some real flaws and i think the attempts at comedy and the story are sort of a mess um but it has some really cool world building but even more than that once the fights start the fights are paced really well and you get these these like memorable little moments where like a monster will where what not a monster you know the, one of the robots will be pushed back and the camera will pan down to like the little tiny gear that's whirring on its foot and you'll see this giant mechanism actually sort of reacting and moving as this truly huge thing that it is in real time and in a way that this movie just doesn't treat these things as sort of as the the legendary beasts that they are um it doesn't have much respect for their real size because everything is just sort of weightless and animated um and I, I just don't think it makes for for very good action and it also just isn't it's not very interesting to watch like i said this movie is this movie is bland and boring Alyssa, were you were you bored by the bland movie 
I mean, this is definitely the most forgettable movie I've watched in a while. Like, it sort of slid into and out of my brain to an extent that I feel like I don't remember it very well, even though I watched it on Friday afternoon. So it's because there's nothing to remember. Yeah. Nothing happens. I mean, mostly what stood out for me is how annoyed it made me with actors I either like or am supposed to like. Like... Damien Bashir is wonderful if you've seen him in A Better Life. He is, I mean, he's charming. He's capable of great subtlety and empathy. And he's just like, I'm going to swagger around in a cape and with a bunch of whiskey. Like, it's just awful. Um, Brian Tyree Henry, also an actor I like quite a bit, who here is this, like, standard twitchy conspiracist character um, in a way that's, like, both in sort of bad taste and given the world. Um, and just not interesting as a role at all. I know I'm supposed to like Millie Bobby Brown, who is awful in this. Um, and it misuses Kyle Chandler, which to me is just like a cinematic sin that practically mandates excommunication. Like, just the worst. Well, he was, he's in like 30 seconds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's, um, he's in like four scenes. You see him for one shot. It's you, a glorified cameo him. that's basically there to remind you that this isn't the first in the legendary monster movies yeah. series. Yeah. Yeah. I just hated it um, and found it just completely, totally forgettable. I think the only thing I like about it is that people turned out to watch it in large numbers in theaters, which means that theaters aren't dead. But I just, I, I mean, I, will completely confess I could not keep my eyes on the screen. I kept drifting back to my phone because I thought it was so dull and indistinct. Um, there's just nothing going for it. You know what What I, I thought about while watching this was just uh, was the end sequence um, in Civil War um, in uh, the Captain America versus Iron Man, right? And and Captain America versus Iron Man um, delivers on the promise of that of the title and of the premise of the movie, right? But it's not just two guys kind of going at it with punches and punches, right? Like, there's a bunch of punching. But what it is is two stylistically different fighters. Just forget that it's also a clash of worldviews that is presented in a way that is, eh, you know, not super, like, in-depth. It's not, like, the best book on, you know, uh, on international relations I've ever read. But it's more in-depth than most, um, than I think even most blockbusters. And these two guys are going at it and they have different fighting styles. They, they have a relationship with each other. And all of that is represented in the way they fight each other. And it, and it, and so it is memorable. Um, the imagery in that scene, in, in that sequence, be, like sticks with you because you can see Captain America doing Captain America stuff that is distinctly Captain American. And you can see Iron Man doing distinctly Iron Man-y stuff. And it is that drama that is created by the two of them fighting each other in their own really distinct ways that makes that sequence great and i like godzilla versus kong here is just like two big dumb lumbering wrestlers and the camera just sort of keeps shaking and turning it doesn't right it it's never plants itself it doesn't even sort of move do that thing that um that uh that the director of the first godzilla did where it sort of would plant and then slowly pan from far away so that you could see sort of a, like a ground level view of how these two Two giant creatures were just absolutely stomping through cities and it just sort of has no sense of what the character of kong is or what the character of godzilla is and i know i know that's kind of a dumb complaint except that the better versions of these movies actually give you some sort of character sense right uh, and and then show that in the action 
And that's not there. It's just two big lumbering things tearing down some buildings and throwing some punches. You weren't moved by watching uh, King Kong's morning routine where he basically plays ape Homer Simpson. Also, I'm sorry. He kind of scratches his butt. I actually found it really distracting just because, like, the monkey has an incredibly detailed butt, but no genitals. And it's like, no wonder he's the last of his kind. (laughs) I mean, this movie is so dumb that this is what it has me thinking, right? I'm like, that's like a really, like, we're doing some really detailed butt muscles here, but also, like, I also want to see the prequel to this that's just the Truman Show, but with King Kong, right? Where he's in a a simulated world and he figures out that he's in a simulated, (laughs) totally controlled world. And he's like, whoa, Ed Harris is totally controlling my reality. No, like, I want to see that movie. And and it, like, starts from the most interesting, like, the end of the most interesting idea that it has, right, is is the, the first five minutes of the film when Kong wakes up in a in a Truman Show simulated reality, and then we never get any actual story about that because this movie isn't yeah. interested well, even well, what, in its own good ideas. What did what do it, was this something that happened in the previous movies that I that I missed no. that Skull no. Island was like engulfed in an enormous storm because all of a sudden I mean there there are so many weird little plot tangents that feel like they are they are playing off of something that happened earlier in the series, like for instance Alexander Skarsgård. Who like keeps like waxing rhapsodic about his you know brave brother who like died in the gravitational to get to the hollow earth yeah. of the hollow earth and I was like wait was there was he in a was he was he was his brother in a previous installment? Also, I'm and sorry, why trying to get why there? can King, why can Kong just like fall through the gravitational vortex? Like Un- unclear to me, unclear to me why he doesn't need to be in one of these fancy spaceships uh, with the 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 booster rocket phaser my, things. My basic feeling about this movie is that all the humans should die and Kong and Godzilla should just like co-rule the well, earth together. So director Adam Wingard has actually said that if they do sequels, they might just be purely animated and not really have human characters in them at all. But and here's, here's even I, still, here's I, like, I don't this movie isn't even interested enough in its two animated Titan characters to do anything with them and I like I I'm I am potentially interested in a Kong versus Godzilla movie that doesn't have any humans, but not if it's at this level. I here's what I don't understand uh, about about this movie, and I saw people you know praising it like, oh, they get they get all the dumb human stuff out of the way to get to the monster. It still takes forty minutes to get to the first f- in an hour and f- uh, what it was fifty seven minutes forty five minutes. I, I think it's about a hundred and five minutes, so it's not it's not a it's not a particularly long movie uh, before the credits anyway. Um, the total uh, runtime is 113, so I think it's an hour yeah, and 45, like pre credit. About an hour and 45 when when the credits start. So like even even in a movie that's not particularly long, uh, it still takes you know a solid 40 percent of the movie to get to the thing that we actually want to see, which is the 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 two big uh, creatures fighting each other. And I like I, I you know I I don't mind a movie that dispenses with common sense, right? Like, I'm a big fan of Independence Day, which is, uh, objectively speaking, a dumb movie filled with dumb and, But it involves Will Smith punching an but alien has, in the face, and that's but it has, awesome. But, but it has hugely charismatic leads in Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum and even Bill Pullman, uh, and, and it has a great supporting cast, and, like, the, 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 the characters in it may be dumb, and the plot situations they find themselves in may be dumb, 
but the 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 it is actually fun to watch what is happening on the screen. And as much as I like Alexander Skarsgård, who I do like, I think he was good on True Blood and and in some other stuff. And you know, as much as I I uh, I like Rebecca Hall. I like Rebecca Hall. And I like I Damian Bashir. I don't know. He's fine, I guess. But you know, we already had one character like that this year. Uh, the the in Wonder Woman 1984. He's basically just playing a very like similarly kind of scummy, uh, you know, uh, vaguely Europeanish type uh, villain. And to be uh, fair, Pedro like, Pascal actually gets vastly more to do sort of emotionally in uh, Wonder Woman 1984 yeah. than Skarsgård does here. Now, granted, that's I mean, also because Wonder Woman 84 is like three hours long, and it's something I two and a half yeah. hours long or something. It's way too long. But it like it, it it has a plot involving a human. I mean, and the dialogue in this is just so forgettable, right? I mean, we're talking about. Pacific Rim and Independence Day. It's like, you know, Idris Elba thundering, like, we are canceling the apocalypse. It's like, that sticks with you a little bit, right? Like, Bill Pullman declaring, like, today is our Independence Day. It's, like, cheesy as hell, but he's Bill Pullman and he sells it. And the movie, like, actually gives you a feeling. And this is just a movie about being a spectator, right? Like, functionally, the humans don't matter. Um, and what the creatures do doesn't really matter either. And it just, it's totally ephemeral. It's just completely and totally ephemeral. Yeah, there's no real stakes for anyone, including and especially Godzilla and King Kong. Um, and that makes a difference. Uh, you I mean, said King this Kong is, like is dead, a... but then he's magically resurrected. Sure, sure. Um, I, but like, I mean, it, again, I'm not, I'm not going to get worked up about, <laughs> about that. that. No, but is... you, it's, Alyssa, you said that this was uh, this made everybody just a, a spectator. And what this actually really reminded me of, especially in the second half, once they get into those weird uh, hollow earth ship things, was the Back to the Future ride at Universal Studios that, that ran in the 1990s. And this was a simulator where you'd get into a DeLorean with like, I think it was six or eight other people. Um, and the DeLorean would sort of rise up out of a uh, an encasing and you would be in front of a kind of a, a, it was like a wraparound IMAX screen. And then the DeLorean would move as you basically raced through a city environment and, um, you know, a, a bunch of in, in a bunch of different timelines. And it was great. I mean, but it was also a 12 minute ride with a bunch of motion simulation. Um, and that's what so much of this sort of feels like is just especially those sequences inside the uh, inside the actual ships. They're shot very similarly to the Back to the Future ride. And and like it's just you're just sort of supposed to sit there and listen to all the bombastic noise and watch Let's the Let's do light effects, guys. And, right? Yes, that's exactly it. And this would be better as a 15-minute simulator ride at Universal Studios uh, than as an even an hour and 45-minute movie that you're supposed to go and like have some connection to the characters in the story. Yeah. yeah. Andy Serkis should just play all fictional apes. That is my conclusion. I, uh, and this is another thing. I, I saw people uh, talking about how good the motion capture is, and we need to really talk about, you know, was it? It's, it's fine. It's perfectly passive. I like there. There were people making excuses for this movie, and I, I don't, I don't entirely understand why this is getting such a pass when Godzilla King of the Monsters, which I think does everything that this movie does except better, because it has a more, ver more varied uh, series of fights between monsters. And frankly, gets cuts to the chase a little bit faster. There's there's the monster fighting starts much earlier. Um, that I like. I I don't. I I. There's something weird uh, going on with the critics. Maybe it's just.
just cabin fever and everybody's like finally a big movie after a year of no big movies uh that that we can we can all talk about and and, and praise but i i was i kind of flummoxed but also nobody came out last week and it was smart and funny and like violent in interesting ways and you could have gotten excited about that one yeah i don't think this is a good movie i didn't think king of the monsters was a very good movie king of the monsters has a little bit more in the way of interesting human characters and it has vera formiga who is just sort of deeply like her she should have been a giant star and she just didn't quite get there for some reason so she just keeps showing up in crap and being really good in it um but i also think that king of the monsters was it was so ridiculous and uh, just sort of just so dumb um that it that people just couldn't take it versus this which is it's both ridiculous and dumb but it's also really straightforward and to the point right it just sort of like i said it delivers on the title and that's it and it and if what you want is godzilla fighting king kong this and that's all you want then this movie delivers it in the way that like a hamburger shack that is promising you a hamburger and nothing else is delivers you a hamburger i don't know that's not a good metaphor it's mcdonald's it's a it's a mcdonald's but single. mcdonald's can be pretty good McDouble. at its best this is not as this is not mcdonald's this is more like um i don't know this is White burger Castle. king man this is this is like the Burger King that you stop how at. You, how is McDonald's better than Burger King? Yeah, that's Burger a King lie. Has the flame broiled Whopper? You're a you're a shill for big big McDonald's. That's what I think. All right, uh, uh, Peter's wrong about that. What do we what do the we think actual about the actual battle thumbs, of the Titans that we need is thumbs, McDonald's thumbs versus, versus Burger, Burger King. King. Thumbs up or thumbs down on Godzilla versus Kong? Thumbs down. Sadly, thumbs down. Thumbs down. I will say it was slight. I so I saw it twice in three days. Uh, such as my fate in life. I I the, the, on TV it was it was whatever. Not very good. In the movie theaters it was slightly better. Uh, because it is just bigger and louder and and everything. I mean it's you know it it is it is what it is and what it is is something that needs to be seen on a theater if you're going to see it at all. Um, all right, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on Godzilla vs. Kong's big week at the box office and what that might mean for the future of movies at atma.tothebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences, and if we don't grow, we will die. If you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.